0: It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts.
1: It is a trilogy detailing victory and loss, adventure and pain, loyalty and betrayal, friendship and family. The stories span decades and continents. And while the first three books of five in the series are novels, the backdrop for these stories are true, all set in notable historical events. Joining us today in studio is author, art professor, and world traveler Walter Soloner. Walter, good to have you with us.
0: Thank you very much, Craig.
1: Your world travel, your interest in art, you're recently retired as an art professor, and your very rich and fascinating family history seemingly have all contributed to this series of books. You've now got three published, two more in the works. Tell us a bit about what drew you into the history, your family's background, and your world travel to ultimately culminate in this five book series.
0: Well, actually, you touched on it, Craig. Family history, of course. Uh, Both my parents uh, immigrated to the United States uh, in the late 30s. Actually, my dad came in 1928. My mother came in 1938. Uh, And my relatives, who I still have many uh, cousins and so forth in Germany, and the old family estate is still there. It's been in the family a couple hundred years. Uh, is still there, and um, all of these things contributed uh, uh, to my interest in history. Um, I taught art history, and it's interesting when you, uh, as a professor, I taught it, and uh, when you teach art history, you have to teach regular history, and to teach regular history, you have to teach philosophy, because uh, the events of history are based on the philosophy of the people who are in charge and uh, and that history all is reflected in the art that's produced. So so although I, I was teaching art history, I was really teaching history and uh, my interest in it. And of course, um, I was very fortunate because my, my parents um, took my sister and I when we were young, traveling uh, back and forth to Germany and uh, to other, other places, you know, Canada and so forth, uh, France, so, um, so we had uh, this experience of um, of traveling and of having a lot of art in our home, actual real paintings, you know, that uh, my uh, my parents brought from Germany and so forth. And so, I had this rich, rich background, and I've always had an interest in history. So, and I actually do collect, uh, uh, you know, Asian art and uh, some military art, nineteenth century military art in home today. And so, um, that's some of the base- basics. It might be interesting for the listeners to know how I actually started writing. I was on a train from Munich to Berlin, and I started writing these what I call vignettes, these short little encapsulated stories. Uh, and I had scraps of paper in my pockets and all stuff. So I wrote about 50 of these, these things, you know, and I was thinking, I should put these in a book. And uh, what these were, were all about the uh, – took place in the first half of the 20th century. But when I was writing these, they were all separate little stories. Some of them took place in World War II. Some took place in World War One. Some took place in the, the belly Epoque period, which was this wonderful uh, – it was called the Beautiful Period – uh, before World War One in, in Europe, you know, in Paris and in Berlin and these wonderful cities. Uh, uh, and uh, and so I had all these stories written and I thought, I'm going crazy writing all these. I got to get in some kind of chronological order. So that's when I decided, okay, I've got to start at the beginning and not just have these scattered stories all over the place. So I thought to myself, Okay, what do I want to deal with? This long, huge history of the world. I can't deal with all that. Why don't I deal with the most climatic period that I know about, which is the first half of the 20th century? So I had, I decided, where shall I start my characters? Okay, I'm going to write, I'm going to write historic fiction. It's going to be a fictitious, a fictitious story, a make, make-believe story, But I want it to reflect true history of the first half of the 20th century.
1: So you, Walter, have essentially taken this intersection between art and philosophy and history, where they all kind of collide or or come together, and now use that as the backdrop that your characters then sort of interact with.
0: Exactly, yeah. So, So I have actually real people in these stories, along with my make-believe people, my made-up characters, right? So there's people like President Wilson, for example, or Bismarck, or these various, you know, uh, people from history, you know, Einstein and so forth. So I use those. So I decided, so where am I going to start this? And I thought, well, you know, there was a unique event in the summer of 1900, and it was the Boxer Rebellion in China. And I knew from history that... There were uh, there were a dozen European countries and Russia and Japan, Imperial Japan, all trapped these de- these delegations trapped in Beijing, and and uh, along with these German troops, and so my two protagonists, I was going to have them in their Boxer Rebellion in China. That's where I'm going to have them start. Uh, this 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 rebellion lasted, uh, you know, just a few months in China and. Um, and so I'm going to have my character start there, and they're going to have all these adventures going from China back through. And the other thing I wanted to point out, to, because most people didn't know about it, was the fact that uh, uh, Imperial Germany at that time in uh, 1900 had all these colonies all over the world. They had Tsingtao, which is you can still give the beard. Uh, it was just up the coast from Hong Kong, it was a German colony on the coast of China, most people didn't even know that. So I had them start there and go through all these different um, German colonies, like uh, Northern New Guinea was another German colony, and the Mariana Islands and parts of uh, Samoa Islands were German colonies, and way over to Africa, four German colonies in Africa. So I wanted to tell that history and weave my characters through these different places and have them have adventures and romances and 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 all kinds of kind of things like that. All the way back to Bavaria, where of course uh, my family you know uh, um, originated from, and where my my relatives are still living there. Uh, back to this family estate, and of course I call it in the book I call it Calverian Hof. Um, uh, it's actually the fictitious name for the old family estate. I'm using that as kind of a central focus for the whole books. So that's kind of how I started. And um, I am now uh, writing the fourth book. Uh, the first book uh, goes from 1900 to 1908. still in the belly pock period, that beautiful period before, before the Great War, the Great War in uh, you know, the First World War. And then the second book, Happens in Africa, in the German colonies in Africa, uh, which most people don't even know about. That uh, you know, most of us, when we think of the First World War, if we know anything about it, we know that all the trenches in France and Belgium and all the fighting in the trenches and all that stuff lasted for four years and it was just horrible. But but there was this fighting in in, in these African colonies, uh, these four these four German African colonies, and those. Those battles and so forth, they were very much like the 19th century kinds of warfare. That is, cavalry, infantry, moving over great distances, no trench warfare or anything like that, where you had that stable uh, thing in France in the First World War. So I wanted to talk about those kinds of things and have my characters uh, interact in that. So that was the second book, which lasted from 1909 to 1919, which covered the First World War period. Then um, the third book covers the um, the Weimar Republic, which was a democratic government in Germany that was formed after the Kaiser and the imperial, uh, you know, the government uh, was defeated in the First World War, and all the turmoil. Uh, that went on uh, in Germany after the First World War, uh, the Depression. They had, you know, they had inflation where, true story, it took a billion marks to the dollar at one time. In other words, they you could have a wheelbarrow full of German marks. That's like the dollar bill, the mark. You could have a wheelbarrow full of those, and you could buy like one egg, one egg with with a billion marks. So the money was virtually worthless. You could probably use it in your fireplace to maybe heat up, you know, for the evening.
1: And, and this was really essentially almost to two events colliding, not only the wave of the impact of the Great Depression that came across mm-hmm. the whole world, for that matter, in the late 1920s, but predominantly in Germany, post-Treaty of Versailles, war reparations that put such a crushing blow on the German economy mm-hmm. that it's it's almost seemed as if the, the, there was the intent of the Allies to make sure that Germany was going to be public, uh, punished and punished almost irrevocably, ironically enough, setting the stage eventually for the Second World War and the rise of Nazism mm-hmm. that in many respects was a response to the World War I defeat and the utter blow to the economy and the spirit of, of Germany after the First World War.
0: Yes. And um, what's interesting is also people probably don't know this, uh, President Wilson was the President of the United States during the First World War. He was really in isolation. He didn't want to get involved in war, didn't want to get involved in war. And then, uh, you know, they had the Lusitania was sunk and all these other things happened. Uh, The Zimmerman telegram, Uh, very interesting, if I can tell this story very quickly. The Zimmerman telegram was a telegram sent by Imperial Germany to the president of Mexico. Uh, Get this, this is during the First World War. Asking or telling the Mexicans that if you declare war on the United States, at the end of the year, when Germany is victorious, when Mexico and Germany are victorious over the United States, we will make sure that that Mexico gets back Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. That that will make sure that you, you Mexico, get, get all those provinces you lost, you know, the, all those states you lost a long time ago. Well, what happened is that Telegram was... Uh, intercepted by the British, the British gave it to the United States, and the Americans were outraged when they found out that the Germans are trying to get Mexico to attack them. So that was the tipping point, that uh, the Lusitania sinking, that great ship you know, with all the Americans on it and stuff, so that sinking, and then this this, this, uh, uh, this telegram, the Zimmerman telegram, um, were the tipping points to get America into the war. But but I was wanted to get refer back to uh, President Wilson, who was very enlightened. He had this 14 points at the end of the First World War, and some of the points he made was that there would be no reparations, no one would lose any territory, no one would be blamed for the war, because there was equal blame, if you want to put it that way, all the way around and that everybody would agree to have diplomatic relations with everybody else.
1: Walter, let me interrupt for just a brief moment. If you've just tuned in, we're visiting today with author Walter Solner. He is the author of a trilogy, the latest book of which is called An Incident in Africa. Let's take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of the conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues.
0: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Welcome back to The Conversation. Craig Roberts, along with our special guest with me today in studio, best-selling author Walter Solner. Clearly, that went the same direction as the League of Nations. That <laughs> yes. all kind of bombed.
0: It <laughs> was it was a great tragedy because Wilson knew the French had a reason for the First World War. Okay, They wanted revenge for the Franco-Prussian War, where Napoleon III... In 1870, invaded Prussia because he thought he was going to be another grandiose Napoleon the First, and he he wasn't, and the Prussians just totally defeated the French almost immediately. So the 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 French wanted revenge from from losing Alsace-Lorraine, which they had to give up to Germany at the end of the of that war. The British had a reason for the war because. Since Germany came late to having colonies, and they had these colonies, were in China and the South Pacific and things like that, the British were threatened by the the need for Germany to build a big navy, because the British were always the commanders of the sea. That's the one thing the British were. They commanded the world oceans, and they did not want to see Germany, a rival having a big navy. So they wanted to stop Germany from from developing a big navy, even though Germany needed a navy because it had these colonies all over the place, right, all over the world, right, Africa and and Asia and everything. And the Russians, who were also on the side of the British and the French in the First World War, the Russians also had, uh, most people don't know this, but, Russia's border was right on the German border at that time. There was no Poland, okay? The Russians had taken Poland a long time ago. And they had just, at the turn of the century, taken Finland because Russia wanted to expand, okay? They kept constantly expanding um, westward. And so they were right up on the German border at the time of the First World War. So the Russians had had this desire to... Um, expand more of their territory. In fact, there was a war called the Crimean War of 1856. That war was fought between the French and the British against Russia to stop Russia from expanding westward toward the Suez Canal. So so the French and the uh, and the English actually fought fought Russia to um, to prevent Russia from expanding and so the, when the First World War rolled around, Russia had desire to get into the fight also because they wanted more land. In fact, at the very beginning of the war, Russia invaded Germany, took a big chunk of uh, East Prussia uh, and occupied that land, which was really amazing that they, they, they actually, uh, they're the only country that actually took any German, any German land uh, at the beginning of the war. France and England never got got any troops on onto German soil. It was only the Russians that did it. President Wilson knew there were all of these other factors. A
1: lot of people with a lot of dogs in that. A fight. lot of dogs in that <laughs> fight. and a lot of old scores to settle.
0: Absolutely. And you know what? And the Versailles Treaty, unfortunately, was just a disaster because they condemned Germany as you're the only aggressor. It's all your fault, which was not true. They took all the German colonies and they took Alsace Lorraine back and actually took other chopped other pieces of Germany off, like Silesia and stuff like that. And they had these absolutely draconian reparations demanding of Germany. Germany was supposed to pay for the whole war. Uh, The French and the Americans and the the Russians and the British all had uh, made demands for payments and there's no way Germany could pay for it, totally bankrupt Germany. In fact, what France did is um, the first year after the war they actually sent troops into what's called the Rue Valley, this very industrial area of Germany and occupied it because Germany had run out of gold to pay reparations, so the, the, the French actually invaded, occupied the territory. And they started taking all of the industrial, they took the coal and the steel and everything like that. And in one town, they actually confiscated all the automobiles in the entire town and took them back to France (laughs) as part of the reparations. (laughs) So... (laughs) <laughs> so you know, you know, so the Germans say, are really <laughs> to, to the
1: victor go the spoils. <laughs> oh, brother, and, and, that's for true. And apparently, too, the ability to write the story to tell the history oh, from that perspective.
0: Well, you know, it's the victors who'd really write history. There's a there's another tragedy about the history of World War One, and that is the history of World War Two, because Germany was in fact an absolute evil force in the World War Two. That reputation, you might say, that history is kind of projected onto World War I, on the Germany of World War I, which was a little different. Germany wasn't a saint at all in World War I, okay? But it wasn't the evil force that Germany in World War II was. Obviously, Hitler and murdering all the Jews and all that kind of horrible stuff, right? The Holocaust and everything. That history, which most people know about, it's the history of World War II, when they hear about World War One, they think, "Well, it must have been the same, you know, the same Germans doing the same thing, right?" It wasn't exactly the same, anyway. So, this is such a rich piece of history—the first five decades of the 20th century—to write about, you know, from 1900 to 1950. And That's the period that I have projected my characters; these couple families that I have, and it's over three generations uh, that I'm writing about these families, and. I'm looking with a little trepidation in writing about my characters in World War II. It's just such a monumental event, and it's so horrible in so many ways. How in the heck am I going to (laughs) have some kind of humanity with my characters I haven't quite figured it out yet, but I'll get to it. I'm still working on the, 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 the fourth book.
1: There's an inclination here, Walter, to sort of treat these events in total isolation. In other words, we look at 1914 to 1918, World War One. then certainly in America we go into a period of prosperity during the Jazz Age, Prohibition in the 1920s, then we find the Great Depression happening, 1929, and then into the pain that was felt, quite frankly, on both ends of the Atlantic through that period of time. But inextricably, these are all woven together and much tighter than perhaps most people realize in so much as you have selected a unique period of time in world history, essentially the first half of the 20th century, that impacts life and the world down to this very day. That if those events had not occurred leading up to World War I, the aftermath of the Treaty of Versailles leading up to World War II, and then all that has transpired post-World War II, life certainly in America, if not across the planet, would look very different today, would it not?
0: It certainly would. And what's ironic and uh, thankfully <laughs> correct in terms of history is, For example, if you take Germany uh, today, it's probably the strongest democracy in Europe totally anti-war because they had to live with their own history of, of the first half of the 20th century, both the First World War but particularly the Second World War, the, the evil that Germany caused uh, for um, that period where the Nazis were in control of Germany. And fortunately, they are now at the forefront of defending democracy, and like NATO and so forth. And of course, we've got a, an American president now that doesn't value those those things so much, which is a real tragedy and, and a real threat to, uh, to world peace and, and stability. It's good to know that Germany, uh, that the United States... With the Marshall Plan after the First World War, really built up Germany and Japan actually also, which is also a you know a thriving democracy now. Uh, yeah, they have a monarchy, but it's only a figurative, very similar to the the British monarchy. So those two former enemies are are the pillars of strength for us. It's kind of ironic when you think about it uh, that now they are. Probably some of our best allies we have, uh, obviously along with 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 Britain and and, uh, and France. Um, so the world evolves in strange ways and makes strange bedfellows. And fortunately, the ones our bedfellows today are are um, some of the strongest allies we have.
1: Let's pause for just a brief moment. We're talking today with best-selling author Walter Solner. His latest book is called "An Incident in Africa." <laughs> We'll take a brief time out and come back to more of our discussion as Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline
1: with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our special guest, with me today in studio is best-selling author Walter Solner. He is the author of a multi-part series, the latest book of which is called An Incident in Africa. Are some of the lessons that you teach is sort of the backdrop, if you will? And again, understanding, yes, they're novels, but they're set in historical events. And I'm wondering, Walter, if some of the the experiences of your characters and ultimately some of the lessons that they learn that we read about as we're kind of watching this all unfold. Do they help us to better understand, as part of your goal here, to better understand the way in which the cast of characters here, and in this case I'm speaking about in world events, all were at one level or another contributory to many of these events? And, and I pose that question because, as you delineated just a moment ago, World War I did not happen in a vacuum. And there were a lot of agendas at play that led up to that war. And certainly World War II did not happen in a vacuum. And it's easy for us, certainly from American perspective, to lay all the blame at the feet of Hitler and say, well, the Germans have a long history of warmongering going back to Bismarck, and so this is sort of what they do. And therefore, it was natural in about 20-year cycles to start another war. And yet, as you're articulating... Much of what happened in post-World War I Germany created this climate that allowed somebody like a Hitler to rise to power and to take the country in the direction that he took it in. Mm-hmm. We think that, well, I don't know, the Germans are gullible or they're not inclined toward choosing their leaders very wisely, but clearly there had to be a pain and a mindset that was happening within that country, dating back to the events of post World War One, that set the stage for the Second World War.
0: That's very true. You know, uh, you mentioned about pain and so forth, and of course, uh, the Great Depression played a big role in uh, bringing on um, Hitler. Because, of course, the uh, you know the people in Germany and and, and the United States, obviously, um, and all of Europe, really. Uh, Uh, in the um, late 20s and early 30s, uh, the Great Depression, and people were looking for a strong leader that would promise them uh, prosperity again. I mean, one of the things that Hitler said, I (laughs) I repeat it because it sounds so contemporary, is, you know, I will make Germany strong again. I will make Germany great again. And we are hearing that. We are hearing that from our U.S. president right now, saying, I will make America great again well, I always thought America was great. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's always been great, right? I mean, we have our flaws, but it's you know, it's it's always been great, and uh, it's, it's not like we've lost something. But it's easy for a strong, charismatic character, and I don't mean to draw a, a parallel between Hitler and and and, and Trump, but uh, but. But Trump is a strong, charismatic character. One of the things he is good at is uh, getting to these nuggets of, um, uh, of information or truth or whatever and, ex- um, and saying it in a way that's very clear and easy to understand and to um, promise a certain part of our population prosperity and a good life and, and pointing the finger at uh, some of the uh, minorities that uh, he feels uh, you know, are somehow keeping this prosperity from the group that he appeals to.
1: Well, I think playing into a sense of national pride can be a good thing, mm-hmm. I, certainly, that I think that the citizens of any nation should feel pride in who they are as a people and their mm-hmm. history and their mm-hmm. culture with the understanding that not all of who they are as a people and their history and the culture is necessarily a good thing, but that playing into that without the benefit of the historical context of it all can potentially be a dangerous thing, particularly when you add to that <clears throat> mix, much as what we saw in Germany um, post-World War I, economic suffering... And a sense of being totally and utterly defeated, no sense of national pride left. And so it was almost a nation for the taking. It, it, there was a vulnerability there, was there not?
0: Yeah, there were. And of course, right after the First World War, we had the, what's, what was called the Weimar Republic, named after a, a town in Germany called Weimar, Weimar Republic, which was a democratic elected government. And unfortunately, at that time in Germany, you had the fascists, you had the socialists, you were the communists, and you had the monarchists. The monarchists, they wanted to bring back the king, you know, in Germany. And the communists, they were Bolsheviks. They wanted to do what the Russian Bolsheviks were doing, you know, kill the czar and all that kind of stuff. The socialists uh, want to control the uh, big uh, industries and have the workers have all kinds of rights and things like that. And the fascists wanted to have a, a one strong leader who controlled everything, made all the decisions, right?
1: And sadly, so, in the leadership of the Weimar Republic, you had an aging war hero but I, I don't think by by that juncture, certainly uh, by the early 30s, uh, Hindenburg was kind of done. He was almost more of a figurehead than a leader, wasn't he? He
0: was, but he, of course, he uh, <clears throat> he he ended up becoming president of Germany and um, our premier. I'm not sure what the, the correct title was for him, but he ended up making signing Hitler the, to be to the chancellery. But during the 20s we had uh, the Weimar Republic, which was a democratic public. But the thing is, all these other, these other uh, political groups I just mentioned, they were all vying for power and <laughs> they were not supporting the Weimar Republic, that is a legitimate government, this uh, fairly weak democracy. And so during the 20s, they had, they had some stability in, in Germany, in the mid-20s particularly, before the Great Depression. But when that depression hit, uh, that really brought on uh, the National Socialists, the, the the Nazi Party, and so forth. Unfortunately, yeah. So anyway, uh, my books, you know, deal with these events and uh, play my characters out against these events. And I am now just uh, in the process of writing the um, this period of the late twenties, leading right up to the de- de- the depression. I'm just at the point of uh, uh, in history of of tackling the uh, the Great Depression in the United States and, and obviously in Germany. You
1: know. You're starting to dive into a period of time, too, that is, I would imagine, for you personally uh, very rich because this is also tied into your Family's life experiences. Your father having immigrated initially from Germany in mm-hmm. the late 1920s. Your mother in the late 1930s. They have met here in the states. I would imagine.
0: No, no, they met over in they Germany. Met over there. Yeah, huh. yeah, yeah. That's an interesting story because uh, a lot of the um, background to this story is from actually personal history, my family's history, my relatives' history. Uh, the history of the town, of the country, uh, the village uh, that my uh, parents were from. Uh, the old estate is still over there. Um, all of these things are woven together, particularly my, my in- actually individual family history, then my parents' history. Uh, my dad did come to this country in, um, in 1928 as an aeronautical engineer. He was studied in Germany and got his aeronautical engineer, but the, the Weimar Republic would not allow... The Germans to have a uh, much of a military and not not develop an air force, so he was an aeronautical engineer. So he came to this country, which was uh, at that time, air transportation uh, was just in its formative years. So there were many opportunities for aeronautical engineers, and my dad actually had a, had a job at, at a number of aircraft companies, one in Los Angeles, in 1928. Um, my dad was working uh, actually on a bomber in a company in Los Angeles, and there was this uh, this like machine gun turret on the top of this thing. Uh, this this bomber he's working on, and at that at that time he decided to go to Germany and um, woo my uh, would became my mother, uh, his girlfriend over there. And he went over there for three months in 1938, which is just before the war began. Just
1: prior to the start of the war, but the buildup was already well underway. Well underway. And a lot of the national or global attention, rather, was trained on what was going on in Germany. There yes. were questions about aspects of the Treaty of Versailles in relationship to Germany's military that yes. clearly raised some questions, and a lot of the neighbors. Let's pause for just a brief moment. We're talking today with best-selling author Walter Solner. His latest book is called An Incident in Africa. We'll take a brief time out come back to more of our discussion as Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Welcome back to The Conversation. Craig Roberts along with our special guest with me today in studio, best-selling author Walter Solner. France, England, very nervous about what was happening.
0: Very, very nervous because Hitler was already in power then uh, and had already instituted a lot of his draconian, um, anti-Semitic rules. Uh, Einstein actually fled Germany uh, because he was threatened with assassination. Uh, A lot of the intelligentsia, uh, fortunately for America, we got all these brilliant chemists and theologians and medical people uh, from Germany that they all realized what was going on and they got the heck out of the country.
1: Amazing to know that if it were not for the anti-Semitic prevailing attitude within the Nazi party, the outcome of World War II might likely have been extremely different, given the, the because of the policies, the ultimate brain drain, that happened to mm-hmm. Germany and very people true. like Werner von Braun and others remained in Germany they mm-hmm. might very well have beaten the allies in the race to build the bomb and uh, we might yes. be in a very different world today
0: that's very true so anyway my dad my dad went went to Germany to to uh, to my mother and he was over there for 3 3 months uh, and and he went around and visited uh, these various aircraft companies where his buddies were working and then he came back to the states and um, there's a long story that I could uh, go into. I I'm sure.
1: would imagine raise <laughs> suspicions on, on both sides of the Atlantic, both in terms of the, the American side wondering what he was doing over there and in terms of the German side that he comes, visits, and then goes back to the United States. Uh, he, he must have been under the ire of suspicion then as potentially being, a, if not a spy for one, maybe a spy for both.
0: Well, that's actually what happened. And uh, I want to tell you the listeners, the people who are listening on the radio of this program, that if you want to find out something about some of your past relatives, one of the incredible sources of information is the Freedom of Information Act. This is an act that allows you to... Um, write to the federal government and say, I want all the information that the federal government has records you have on uh, my family and um, on my father, whoever it is. Uh, And I did that, and I got back a packet about an inch thick, literally an inch thick of all these documents relating to my father before and during uh, the Second World War. And it was a, just an eye opener to see all the all these documents. And what's interesting also is that I thought, you know, those Germans keep really good records. So then I called up my cousin Angela in Germany, and I said, would you do me a favor? Would you petition the German government or write to the German government and say, do you have inf- any information on? Rudolf Sollner, which is my father's name, Rudolf Saller, uh, and you know, and so what happened is she ended up getting back a packet of information on my father during the Second World War, and, and just before the Second World War, this period where he was over there, and um, and so I had it all translated. It's full of a lot of very interesting information. It turned out that. Um, the Americans, for a while, thought my dad was a was a spy for Germany when he went off these aircraft companies, and the Germans thought he was a, a he was a spy for the Americans. Both, and I had all these documents of both the Gestapo following my dad around when he was in Germany for those three months, and also the FBI following my dad around for a couple of years over here. And it turned out, of course, he wasn't a spy for anybody. And in this packet of information I got from the Freedom of Information Act uh, are two letters signed by J. Edgar Hoover exonerating my father of, of being a spy and all that kind of stuff. So it's very interesting as a source of information, family information, if you ever, if any of the literatures ever are interested in inquiring that and what I had to simply do was just uh, send in my dad's um, uh, death certificate and say, okay, I want everything you've got on my dad, you know. And they had sent this big packet of information. And, of course, a lot of that information is material I can use in my book. And this is interesting,
1: <laughs> Walter, because it, it's sort of the, the leading edge, the tip of the, of the spear, if you will, uh, that that points to not only your ultimate life but how different things might have been. Under the circumstances, if just one jot or tittle had been different, if, for example, during that three-month stay in Germany, if he had been stopped by the Gestapo and detained, who knows what the outcome might
0: have been. Well, he probably could have been sent in a concentration camp. I mean, that's what they did, right? Anybody that was suspicious. For example, I had two uncles, German uncles, okay? These were the, the brothers of my mother. They stayed in Germany during the war. And uh, both of them were drafted into the, uh, into the, the Weimar Army, the, the German Army near World War Two. World One of them um, had, a, had a job as a mechanic, as an aeronautical mechanic before, before the war, and he said something against Hitler. And the next day these guys came and said, you don't have this job anymore, and you're either going to come with us or you're going to join the Army. And that was a way uh, that, that, that Hitler controlled um, Any dissent? If it wasn't too bad a dissent, if somebody just said something, well, they were just thrown in the army. If they did anything worse than that, they were thrown in a concentration camp, right? So, some of my, my, oh, my one um, uncle, Uncle George Schorsch, he didn't want to be in the army, and so, uh, but he was in the invasion of France, and the first thing he did is he and her buddy, uh, they found a way to surrender to uh, the Allies, and he ended up spending the, uh, the year uh, the, uh, the war in a uh, POW camp in England. So that was, that was my one uncle, my other uncle, uh, Rupert. He was in the, in, the, in the army for the entire length and ended up being captured by the Russians and was sent to Siberia. Uh so you know there are all these tragic stories you know uh what's interesting is in terms of indoctrination of the people in Germany um after Hitler took over all the boys starting at age 12 had to be in the in the um Hitler Youth, Hitler youth mm-hmm. and the women all had to be in the uh, young teenage girls all had to be in the equivalent of the Hitler Youth but it was made it was for, for just for girls and, I mean, my mother was in that, and both of my uncles, they didn't have any choice. They had to be in this, of course, and this was a big you know, indoctrination. It was like the Boy Scouts except, <laughs> except with a lot of political yeah, indoctrination. Yeah, very, very right?
1: compulsory. But, but ironically, it was a very well-thought-out approach to capturing the hearts and minds of German youth.
0: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: The whole program of strength through joy and and bringing people together with a sense of, you know, not only encouraging a better sense of health and well-being and exercise and the great outdoors, but at every level, not only serving as a great training ground for the men to eventually enter into the military, but a great training ground for the women who eventually were seen as the means of providing the next generation of soldiers. Let's pause for just a brief moment. We're talking today with best-selling author Walter Solner. His latest book is called An Incident in Africa. We'll take a brief time out come back to more of our discussion as Lifeline continues.